Good morning again. Thank you so much for joining with us as we continue our study uh, through the life of Christ in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 17 now. As you look that up, can I encourage you who are listening to try and support your local food bank. The children out there not getting hot meals because of the school closures and the food bank in our town is uh, can only hold on for so long. I know if when I've been to the shops, you can start to feel the panic. And so it can be hard not wanting to put your family first and to not think of anything else other than your own family. But can I ask you to, as you go into the shops, go in with the mindset of getting something so that you can give away, get something so that you can give to the food bank. That would be really appreciated. We're jumping forward now into chapter 17. And Jesus' focus is something that has been on my heart since the coronavirus hit our shores, and that is priorities. So this message is called The Things That Really Matter. Our society has had to really rethink what that means, what our priorities are, what really matters. Turns out toilet paper really matters, and some maybe more than to others. Teachers matter. Nurses matter, delivery drivers matter. And as a church, we're being reminded that the building doesn't matter. We're remembering that who we are matters more than where we meet. So for Jesus, what is it that really matters to him? Well, let's read the first couple of verses of Luke 17. One day Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who is doing the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. You know what that sounds like? It sounds kind of like the mafia, right? That millstone around his neck. Now these millstones, they weigh 700 pounds. Could be a quarter tonner, three, 400 kilograms, depending on what system you're using. So if you had that tied around your neck, you'd definitely be sleeping with the fishes. It sounds harsh, right? We like to think Jesus spoke with a gentle, pious, almost a musical kind of voice with birds chirping wherever he went. But that's not Jesus you're thinking of. That's a Disney princess. Jesus is wanting to startle. He's wanting to come across as brash because that's the point he's trying to make. You've caused an offence to someone. You've brought a young believer to a place where sin has caught them and hurt them. There's consequences to that, like any father would want to do to protect his children. Now, maybe it's easy for the disciples here to think about the Pharisees. They've been trying to stop Jesus. They've been trying to get in their way. So they're thinking, oh, these Pharisees, they're going to get it now. But let's look at where Jesus goes with this in verse 3. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. And then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. So Jesus shifts the focus here. He says, if you're the one who's been hurt, well, normally we've got two responses here. We've got fight or flight. We'll either back away from confrontation and not address the issue, but passively, aggressively talk about them behind their backs, you know, the traditional Christian way. Or we bite back and we fight fire with fire and we're looking for a millstone just the right size for their big stupid neck. Neither of these are Christian responses. We are to address them in love privately. Tell them of the hurt that they caused in love and call them to repentance in love. You don't have to say 
you're an idiot. That's my rebuke. What were you thinking? You go to that person and you say, look, that was wrong. Here's why. Do you understand why? And if they repent, then your line is, I forgive you. You draw a line under it. it you don't hold any grudges. It's over. You go to that person, you get it over with. Instead of holding on to something for 30 years and letting it eat away and poison you, you've no idea how many issues I've dealt with. And all it really required was someone to speak in love instead of anger or, or instead of pride. And even if that person refuses to apologize, you're free from guilt. Be willing still to forgive, but move on in peace. And then Jesus says that we should do it seven times. Now, he doesn't mean the eighth time you get to smack them around the head. No, it's not about the quantity. He's using an exaggeration to make a point, which is people, we as Christians should be people marked by forgiveness, being people who are characterized by a desire to forgive. And since we've been forgiven an eternal debt by God, we should be able to forgive imperfect people because simply for being imperfect. Because it's not about the amount of times. Love keeps no record of wrong according to 1 Corinthians 13. So if he says, I'm sorry, you forgive him. You extend the hand of forgiveness. Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. This is the right response. If someone's going to wrong you, it takes you to dig deep to let it go. So if they've wronged you more than once, it really requires a lot of faith in digging deep to help. So the apostle's response is a good one. We need more faith. You're going to have to show us this. This idea of the mustard seed and moving trees, it's not literal. Jesus is not saying that by having great faith in him, you can have a really wonderful landscaping business. Okay, you trees, you go over here. Shrubs go over here. Right, daisies, you can come up in the middle. No, it's not literal because with no record of the disciples ever doing this or anyone in church history ever doing this. The related verse in Matthew where it talks about moving the mountains and you say to the mountain be removed, it will go into the sea. Again, with no record of anyone in history or, or in the church doing this. However, according to William Barclay, in ancient times, someone who could explain truth and unravel spiritual mysteries was called a remover of mountains or an uprooter. Someone revealing spiritual truths and handling it and sharing spiritual truths was someone who moved mountains, who removed barriers for people. So what Jesus is saying here in that context is that a little mustard seed, even though it is tiny, has life in it and it is alive. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be given time. Yes, to grow, to have strength. Yes. But a living faith, even needing time and nurturing, can come to terms with truths revealed in Scripture. Even the tough ones, like forgiving the people who have wronged us. And it can remove those barriers that maybe hold us back from doing so. So how do we get to a place where we can forgive big wrongs done against us? You take that young growing faith and you just try. You keep going. Psalm 37, 5 says, commit your way to God, trust in him and he'll bring it to pass. So your faith may only be a little mustard seed, but that seed is alive and it will bear fruit in time. And our faith and our love is measured by how willing we are to forgive, even as we have been forgiven. Let's move on. Verse 7. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put it on your apron and serve me while I eat and then you can eat later. Does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. 
In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants and have simply done our duty. Now, this is an ancient world we're talking about, not the modern world. Of course, in a modern world today, people would go to human resources if somebody didn't treat them right and say, well, he was being mean to me. My boss just orders me around all day. Well, yeah, she's your boss. That's her job. She's supposed to tell you what to do. We should know our place. We serve our king and we don't get to challenge the authority of the king. We are servants. But what does it mean to be unprofitable servants or unworthy servants? Why does Jesus say that we should think of ourselves in this way? He's not saying that we need to be negative about ourselves and beat ourselves up. There's a lot of Christians who think like that and they're very hard on themselves. But rather, our attitude should be, God, you don't owe me anything. Master, you don't owe me a thing. If I serve the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, I'm never going to come to a place where I go, okay, God, now you owe me something. Lord, I'm an unprofitable servant. You don't owe me a thing. I've simply done what is my duty to do. And if the Lord tells you to jump, we say, well, how high? If he tells you how to walk, you say, how far? Or you say, Lord, I'm going to keep walking until you tell me to stop. It's obedience that he's talking about here. I'm not going to do it because then God's going to owe me something. No, no. If I go on this mission team, then you have to answer my prayer. Or if I give generously to the food bank, well, then you're going to have to give me health and wealth. No. If a friend says to you, I've been doing this, for, this thing for, for you for years. Now I'm sick of it. Our response, what's it going to be? It's going to be, well, don't do it then. If it's such a burden, don't do it. I think the Lord might have the same attitude here. The Lord loves a cheerful giver and one who does it from the heart is an act of worship. I love people who love to serve the Lord. And it's not like, okay, God, you owe me something now. No, Lord, I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm an unworthy servant. You don't owe me a thing. This is my job to do and I love to do it for you. So what are Jesus' priorities being? He wants us to forgive. He wants us to be faithful servants. The third priority that he has here is thankfulness. Verse 11, as Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village, we don't know which village, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, why do they stand afar off? Because the law required them to stand afar off. Three passages in the Old Testament tell us that a leper must shut out unclean. Certain Jewish records and traditions say that that has to be 50 yards away. So what does that mean if you have leprosy? You're ostracized. You've no social life. It's the Bible version of social distancing. There's people in our town that are struggling to cope with being two meters apart from each other, which baffles me still. Well, these lepers had to be 50 yards, which is what, 45 meters or 150 feet again, depending on what measurements that you're using. Verse 14, he looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. You know, Jesus' healings, they're all very different because it's not a formula. It's all about him, who he is. So there's not a method as such. He did each one uniquely. One time he walked up to a guy and spat in his eye. Now that's an interesting method. I don't see people in healing churches doing that. Could you imagine? They might get sued. But notice that they were these lepers were healed as they went. Now to do this, that takes faith. I'm going to start going. I'm going to start moving before I've got proof. I'm going to trust that as I go, it will happen. It will fall into place. 
I've read some people and they'll say, well, this means that Jesus wants us to take the first step sometimes. Act and he will react. It's a load of nonsense. That's what it is. That's not what's happening here. What does Luke just told us? He's told us about the obedient servants being faithful, the unworthy servants. Here we see 10 sick people who've been given a command and they go in response to the command. Jesus is still making the first moves. He gave them his word. They're healed by faith and that faith demanded obedience. They were healed as they went, but they went in obedience to God. So what I do want to say, I do want to say this. I don't know why the Lord heals some and not others. I know that Jesus healed many people during his ministry, but he didn't heal everyone. In Acts 3, there's a man who sat at the beautiful gate. Jesus walked past him many times, but he's still there after he ascended into heaven. And in Acts 3, the disciples are walking past and it's then he's healed. So I don't know why some are healed and others aren't. I don't know why some Christians get sick and others have perfect health. And I don't know why unbelievers have perfect health and godly people get sick. I don't get it. I don't always understand. And in times like this, it will still make no sense. But we go on in faith. His word to us is that he will never leave us. That his plans for us are for our good and for his glory. So like these lepers, we should go on our way, trusting, obeying. But we always need to make sure that there's room for worshipping him also. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, praise God. He fell on the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give me glory, to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. Ten healed. Only one was a worshipper. Only one came back to express thanks. I wonder how different that ratio is for believers today. We'll, we will all come and pour out our hearts in a time of crisis, but how many come simply to worship in times of goodness and health? Take the time to rejoice in what God is doing. Take time to thank him for the good things in your life for each person for their health, take the time to be thankful, even in these difficult times. So let's check our priorities then. Are we forgiving? Are we faithful? Are we thankful? The last one, are we prepared? Verse 20, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. In other words, you don't have to look for the kingdom out there. It's not going to be something that you can see and identify. The kingdom of God standing right in front of you. I'm the king of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's within your reach. All you have to do is believe in the king of the kingdom. And you'll be in that kingdom. That's what it means in a literal translation here. The kingdom of God is among you. The king of the kingdom standing eye to eye with these Pharisees. But... They still couldn't see it. They wanted to see it out there in the ether somewhere. Signs, wonders. Yet they still didn't believe it whenever Jesus did it. Because they refused the king of the kingdom to come into their hearts. Now Jesus gives us some specifics here to think about. About being ready. Verse 22. When he said to his disciples. The time is coming when you will long to see the day when the son of man returns. But you won't see it first thing I think you need to see here is that some people will be obsessed with trying to track down the coming kingdom. Look, Bible study is good. 
thinking about prophecy, it's good to an extent, but be careful about fixating on the specifics because you, in doing so, you might ignore the fact that no one knows the day or they are, and anyone who thinks they've got it sussed out is only fooling themselves. Verse 23, people will tell you, look, here's the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. Second thing that you need to see here, the same way people were surprised by his timing the first time that he came to Bethlehem, so too will we be surprised when he comes the second time. We don't know when. So the lesson is be ready. Now be prepared. Jesus uses two examples of that in the next couple of verses that we'll not read. Noah and the flood, people weren't ready. Then the same for Lot, whenever he lived in Sodom. Life went on as normal, that they started like any other. They weren't ready. Verse 30, drop down to verse 30 with me. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. So if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. That night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, I don't believe this is a reference to the rapture. The context is the tribulation. It means that they will be taken to judgment. That's the context. Go to verse 27. Noah entered the ark. The flood came and destroyed them all. They were taken away by the floods to judgment. They'll be taken away during this time that, that Jesus is talking about. You don't want to be one of the people who's taken away. You want to be one of the ones who's left behind in this scenario, in the context of these verses, because you'll stay for the millennial kingdom. In the same way Noah and his family were left behind while everyone else was ushered away into judgment. In the same way Lot and his family were left behind while the rest of Sodom was taken. This is the context of the verse. Verse 37. Where will this happen, Lord? asked the disciples. Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures show where there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Taken where? Seems like a reasonable question, doesn't it? You know, in movies, whenever you see the vultures circling, what does it mean? It means that there's dead bodies. It's a picture of the aftermath of the great battle in Revelation 19. Verses 17 to 21. Those who are alive in Christ are distinctive from those who are dead in sin. You know, in our country, we have a law that says a man is innocent until proven what? Innocent until proven guilty. Here's what you need to know. That's not the way it is with God. Because of the fall, because of sin, because we are sinners by nature and by choice, we are all guilty until proclaimed innocent. When you trust in Jesus, that's all it takes. He proclaims you free and innocent and saved. So righteousness of religion never cuts it. Trusting in Jesus does cut it. You need to be prepared because no one can truly grasp when he's going to come back. I hope this lockdown has given you the chance to have a look at your priorities in life, what really is important to you. But I hope through this study you can see that Christ also has a measure of priorities that we need to look at. We need, as Christians, to be people marked by forgiveness. We need to be people who are marked by faithfulness, obedience. We need to be people marked by thankfulness and worship. And we need to be people marked by preparedness. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone who's listening to this. 
Lord, I, I pray that it will resonate deep. Lord, a sense of priorities. Lord, may we truly grasp the things that matter the most in this life. Lord, you've given us four markers. Lord, may it apply to us. And Lord, if not, Lord, may we even spend this time now to make it right and to be right with you, to be ready and to be an example by action and by deed. And so, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.